Yes. Yep, I want to thank my friends in the Delphonics for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Give us 60 minutes and perhaps indeed we will give you a raw bone podcast. And sure, sure, there are some good wrestling podcasts out there, but are they wicked good? Oh, hell no. I think that settles that issue. And with that, I would like to bring on our convivial co-host, Mr. Sean Goodwin. Sean, how are you doing this week? Have we been sued by Newbury Comics yet? Uh, not yet, but not yet. you never know. One of these days, no. Uh, so with me, it's the Facebook because we have an equally great Facebook page with now, I believe we're approaching 750, uh, fine folks who are all really friendly. And if you weren't around this week, you missed, uh, who did Bob Backlund beat 40 years ago? If you need to know, uh, were Vernon Dick Atlas ever young? Did Dusty and Manny resolve the unemployed uncle fat friend dispute? And what the hell is Sonny Myers doing to Iron Mike DiBiase? All these questions, magazines, we have a discussion right now about who is the biggest draw of, uh, you know, who, who is the biggest draw in the, you know, the most different arenas around the world. You know, so stuff like that. Just, you know, why wouldn't you want to do this? It makes no sense. No, it, it's it's totally free. And it's a, an extension of the Stick to Wrestling podcast. So if you like this, you're going to like that. And hey, follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's John McAdam. Just put in my name and you see two guys fighting, fighting with chairs and become a follower on my march to a million Twitter followers. And speaking of which, the Dusty and Manny thing came from the, the, the best Twitter follow besides me out there is this thing, Super 70s Sports. If you're into like 70s and 80s nostalgia sports, definitely follow this guy. Uh, if you go to our webpage, he, he's a big, like, uh, old school wrestling fan, too. And if you go to our uh, Facebook page, you will see the thing he did with Dusty Rhodes and Manny Fernandez, an incredibly funny caption. But anyway, we are going to now go to part two of our discussion with Mr. Chris Tabar. It was a really good show. Clash of the Champions 10, which took place now over 30 years ago, if you want to feel really old. And let's go to that right now. Road Warriors versus Skyscrapers. My first question, and Tabe, I will ask you this. Why are the Road Warriors dismantling cars in a junkyard <laughs> video? Because they'd already eaten raw chicken in an AWA video, and this is the only place they could go with them. I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it's exactly like the doctor that thing. It makes absolutely no sense. It doesn't help them. It just makes them look stupid, which they're the road warriors. Just all they have to do is walk out on your TV screen and boom, that's all you need. Why have them do anything else? Sean, what are your thoughts? They feel tired here. <laughs> I don't know. They don't, they, don't, they don't feel like the guys from like two or three years earlier. There's just some kind of like, it just there's a, an intensity lacking. That you know, the problem yeah. is they're tired, but they're no longer the big guys. The skyscrapers are a lot bigger and look a lot that tougher. Kills them. And it, yeah, now all of a sudden they're just the road warriors and they start out the match selling. It just, no, they have no aura. They're done. They're just over as being the badasses of the eighties that they were. It's like a changing of the guard. And I'm guessing right. the bookers thought that too, because they did not get treated nicely here. No, they did not. Well, at this point, I think if you're going to have the Road Warriors in any kind of a, a serious feud, and they had been, they meaning the promotion, had been salivating over a Road Warriors versus Skyscrapers feud. Finally, we're going to get these two huge guys 
against the Road Warriors, and it's going to be a moneymaker. And in order for that to make money, the Road Warriors have to at least look like there's a chance they might lose. Sean, what do you think? I guess, but I just think they're cannon fodder at this point. I mean, what, what use are the Road Warriors if you're using them like this? And here's the thing. They had been on WTBS since 1983. They took like a year break, but, you know, they came back in early 86 and they've been on since. And any act starts to get stale at some point. And I'll read right from my notes. Right around this time, roadies to WWF talk started. Their contracts were ending, I want to say, May or June. And... I mean, I think they, at this point, they kind of made it known that they were looking to make the jump. Well, that was, it was about six months earlier when they got killed in Marietta in the cage and the Marietta massacre. So they, they'd already been kind of made to look weak. And now they go in with guys that are a lot bigger than them. This is almost setting up like making the skyscrapers the big deal rather than the road warriors. Didn't they say during the match that they were going to be wrestling on the pay-per-view two weeks later anyway? Why even put this on the clash? Because now you, you're either giving away the match or you're going to end up with an inconclusive mess, which is what we got. Yeah, well, I think anyone knows this was going to end in an inconclusive mess, and it certainly did. I mean, the referee just, you know, they were going for the finish and the referee just like went away. He, he didn't even like take a bump, wasn't distracted. He just like walked away from it. It was crazy. Give Spivey credit, though. He took the doomsday device. Yeah. Get big, a big guy like that, give him credit for taking that bump. Big guy who already had bad knees and a, and a bad hip. I mean, Spivey, I always thought Spivey could have been a bigger deal in this business, but he, you know, it, it just didn't work out for him. By the time he was ready to get pushed, he was physically spent. He ended up uh, going over to Japan and having some good matches in all Japan, though. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I mean, and I mean, I've heard about that. Like I said, you know, his... His knees were already gone. His hip was already gone. And he was still out there performing at a high level. But one thing I wanted to share, when it finally became official that Sid was out of the skyscrapers, they felt like they couldn't wait for him to come back. And he didn't come back until like May. And they brought in um, Mark Calloway. And the first time I saw Mark Calloway, I'm like, oh, my God, this guy, he's too skinny. He's not muscular enough. And by the time this match rolled around, oh, yes, he was. It's the wrestling business. You do what you need to do. How uh, long did he last on this team? Uh, let me think. Spivey got hurt before the May pay-per-view, or maybe it was even the next pay-per-view. Spivey was hurt. They brought in some mask guy as a skyscraper, and then they, they just dropped the team. It was something that they were planning on, like the skyscrapers were going to be a huge deal, and it never really made money. It just puttered out at the end. Reason I ask is it wasn't that long after this that he became the Undertaker. When did he become the Undertaker? 1991. Yeah, 91. Yeah. So another year. Okay. But yeah, he- and he got a singles push after the skyscrapers, and he had on pay per view a big U.S. title match against Lex Luger. But it was almost like you know, surprise. WCW did not know what to do with this guy, who's legit six eight and has that look, but the WWF knew what to do with him. He debuted as Kane the, uh, Kane the Undertaker. I did not know that was his original name. Kane the Undertaker on November 19th, 1990. So you're basically looking at 10 months. Okay, wow. And wow. that's right. I, now I remember he went to Memphis and did a match against Lawler, and he made sure that you know he did not do a job for Lawler. He didn't want to be part of that uh, 
videotape that Lawler would put out of him, you know, pinning Harley Race and pinning whoever. Everybody. Yeah, and he went and so he, I took out Mil Mascaris. <laughs> yeah, well, that that didn't make it to videotape, unfortunately. But yeah, he made it a point like he's not, you know, doing a one, two, three. And looking back, that was probably not the worst idea. Oh, and so it was 1990. And the more I rewind this, yes, by 91, he was a, a babyface. But anyway, um, so Steiners versus Doom. You know, it's wrestling. We get used to dumb names. Doom is a dumb name for a tag team, and Woman is a dumb name for a valet. That's the least of my concerns with this. Uh, you have a tag team with two African-Americans. When you start this tag team, there are three African-Americans on the roster, and neither one of those guys is Ranger Ross. <laughs> so it really shouldn't take a brain surgeon to figure well, out who, who the two guys are. And this went on for the entire time they were together. Well, Jim Ross says during this match that it's the, the, their identities are the worst-kept secret in wrestling. No kidding, Jim. You gave away their names in their debut match. You said who they were. <laughs> Come yeah, on. But you might because I, I, I remember Lance Russell doing stuff like this. If it was, like, ridiculous and Lance wouldn't go along, he goes, oh, obviously we know who, you know who this is. And, I mean, Jim's just protecting his reputation here because it's obvious who these two guys are. It was just pointless to have masks on them. Why, why did they bother with the masks? I, I have no idea, but I mean, I've said this on the show before, and I apologize for repeating. I was at Halloween Havoc 89 when Doom debuted. We did not see them on TV. We did not see photographs of them. We had no idea who Doom was. And when they came out, the little kid in front of me started screaming Butch Reed and Ron Simmons. I mean, it was that. And they weren't even in the ring yet. He, they were like 200 feet away. And the kid's like, Butch Reed and Ron Simmons. This kid had to be eight years old. And he, right away, he figured it out. But what did we think of this match, Chris? It was all right. Nothing real special. Um, it felt like they, I don't know, like they, they, they just didn't quite mesh. But, you know, it did what it's supposed to do. I, and I don't, I, I hate when they do mask versus something matches and then they, the one team sits there and tries to take the masks off anyway. I always hated that. Just win the match. You're going to take them off for you. Just, just win the match. I thought Rick Steiner pulling the mask off of Butch Reed I thought it was funny. I don't know why. I just think, you know, and Butch Reed with that shocked over the top look. Oh, no. Now people know who I am. I, it, it was, you know, three stooges pie in the face. But I thought it was funny. Sean, what do you think? Yeah. And as he's sitting there explaining to Ron, apologizing for losing his masks, he gets pinned. So now Ron has to lose his mask, too. Good job. Well okay, done by everybody. I that part I did like. I did. I thought it was funny the way he ripped it off. I just earlier in the match, I, in general, I don't like that. But the pulling it off by surprise and then he's all shocked and at least the pin. That yeah. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. Rick Steiner putting the mask on was was yeah. absolutely hilarious. I forgot he did that, and I was laughing out loud when I saw that again for the first again for the first time yesterday. Now I'm talk- Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Chris. No, no, uh, I was just gonna say, as far as the match goes, I agree. I, it was fine. They've had better. I was just going to throw in because I don't know how often I'm going to be on this show, but I just want to throw in, hey, those guys were invited to my wedding, but they were not able to come because they were in Japan. So their dad was at my wedding instead. He was at the, the, uh, the Steiners actually uh, family friends of my wife's family. Uh, their dad is a super nice guy, Frank. He passed away several years ago, but he was at our wedding. Uh, Steiners brothers were supposed to be there, but couldn't. So just want to throw that in. Oh, wow. Your your family is friendly with the Rex Steiner family. Yeah, my my wife's family, not mine. But yeah, because oh. Rex Steiners are from Bay City. That's where Michigan, which is where my wife is from. So, and my my father in law was a sports reporter, and they, so they and so he knew the Rex Steiners through that, and they and Frank and he became friends and stuff. 
I'm trying to figure out a Bay City Roller joke, but I can't because I'm not a funny person. <laughs> They're named after Bay City, Texas. Really? I thought yeah. it was Michigan. I thought they no, threw a dart at the map or something. They, and... they did, but it's actually, I think it's Texas, but it's not It's not Bay City, Michigan. Oh, but, that's such but, a disappointment. But, but Bay City, Michigan claims it anyway. <laughs> <They're>, I <laughs> claim it. <laughs> uh, anyway, bad 70s references from your podcasters. All right, now. Gordon Soley interviews the four horsemen. I'm going to get your thoughts on this interview, but one thing, Arn Anderson remained silent this entire night, and he's one of the best talkers out there. Then again, so is Ole, then again, so is Rick. But uh, I mean, what did you think of that interview? I don't have any notes written down. I honestly cannot remember it, so maybe that's what I remember, that it's completely forgettable. <laughs> but I don't, honestly don't remember the, the interview, What? so re- refresh my memory. Well, Ole basically took over the whole thing and said that Sting... You know, he has until the end of the program to come out and say that he's not going to wrestle Ric Flair on the pay-per-view in two weeks. Otherwise, they're going to break into his dressing room and get him. It, it wasn't Ole's best interview, to say, to say the least. Sean, what did you think? I, it's coming back to me now, but I'm with Chris. I'm like, what interview? What interview? Uh, I didn't remember it, and I, it, it was unnecessary. They already made the exact same point before, and then you just got out to say it again. There was no point to it at all. You know what? I thought there was because they said it two hours ago, and I think they needed to hammer that point home. That really? You know, Sting, yeah, Sting, you're no longer a horseman, and you've got X amount of time until the end of the program to come out here and back out of that title match, which you know everyone knows Sting's not going to do. Yeah, Jim Cornette mentioned it 400 times every two yes. seconds. Why Why do we need to have another interview the same thing? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Sean's right. There's no need to have it again. I think it's it's the guys who are saying it that you know Jim Cornette saying it is one thing the horseman saying it is another and yeah and so now we go to the ring it's uh, Ole Anderson taking Sting's place in the main event it is now Ric Flair Arn Anderson and Ole Anderson against Buzz Sawyer Great Muda and Dragon Master and boy the crowd like you guys said earlier the crowd doesn't know what to do with it Tabe what are your thoughts again I. <laughs> I can't get over Dragon Master even being there. This is no, he he wasn't even a mid-level star. He just thrown in. I know he was. That was part of the, the faction. He's just out of place. Pretty decent match though. I thought they did a pretty good job with the match. And then it's like the Buzz Sawyer show. He's he's getting slammed into the cage. He's jumping off the cage. He's the one carrying the show. I agree. Buzz Sawyer looked like a guy who, I mean, he had basically been a wall from the top of the business. Uh, since like 83, 84, when he got fired from Georgia. And he looked like a guy, he's not a main eventer in a big company like WCW, but he looked like a guy that they could do something with. Sean, do you agree with that? Absolutely. TV title, maybe. I mean, he was it, he was like Bugs Bunny in that baseball cartoon. You know, Bugs Bunny at first base. Bugs Bunny said, you know, I, I felt like Buzz was like putting himself into slams. He was everywhere. And the other problem with this match is the fact that half it wasn't on tape. Half the match, you're looking at either Flair yelling at Sting or Sting yelling at Flair or Sting injuring himself. Yeah, I mean, by the time when they shot that angle, they really took any meaning away from the match itself, certainly any meaning away from the ongoing feud between uh, the Horsemen and the, what was formerly JTEX with Gary Hart. And I guess Gary Hart had already like gone home. One thing I, I noticed, um, it's in my notes here, it was a nice touch that they made it obvious during the match interviews that they had been done before the show and that since those interviews took place, the world had turned upside down. Like Ric Flair was doing his interview 
totally as a baby face. And it, it just looked like what went on was not planned. I mean, any thoughts on that tape? Yeah, I thought, you know, I hadn't really noticed that, but you're right. You're right. That that's like the one good bit of planning that they did. And then, yeah, I thought so that that's a that's good. Maybe a little bit of forward thinking on their part. Yeah, good point. And Sean, any thoughts from you? Yeah, it probably went out that way because they had to go. They had no time left. So the wrestlers had to do it themselves. So, hey, look at that. You let the wrestlers do their job and it comes out perfectly. <laughs> I mean, and for me, and I think the rest of the crowd, we all just kind of sat there looking at the wrestlers doing their spots, waiting for Sting to come out. And obviously Sting comes out and he starts barking at Flair and we get the guys holding Sting back from going after the four horsemen. And then Rick is barking at Sting. One thing. So then Sting tries to climb the cage. And I mean, just the worst case scenario for WCW. This is an absolute nightmare. Two hours after they shoot this angle that their whole business is going to be based on, Sting blows out his ACL, climbing or trying to climb down from the cage. Tabe, you told us earlier that you tore your ACL. I mean, what's that like? Well, it hurts like you can't even imagine. I'm, when I did it, like, I oh, I shredded mine. And yeah, it's it's unbelievably painful. What's funny about that, though, is that once that initial shock wears off, you can walk around as long as you're not trying to do, you know, athletic stuff, you can walk around. So that's why Sting was able to be on his feet and he's limping a little bit. It hurts, but that goes away and you are still able to walk around. You can live with it. I lived with mine for a, a year before I finally had it fixed. So it, it is possible, but yeah, it, the pain is just absolutely unbelievable. It hurts just off the charts. Yeah. And Sting is in the middle of an angle and he does this and, I mean, someone asked, you know, was Ric Flair aware of, you know, Sting being injured? Uh, Clearly he wasn't because Flair went right after him. And by the way, I thought that was crazy. Like the match ends, Flair gets out of the cage and he charges Sting uh, when Sting is being, you know, he charges through a crowd of people to go after Sting. That is not a very heelish thing to do. If you're a heel, you back away. Yeah, but it went into the theme of him being so upset at Sting for challenging him for the title. Yeah. And and you're not going to fly with having Ric Flair is solely a cowardly heel at this point. Crowd's not going to buy it. You know, one thing about, about the whole angle I wanted to touch on, if you're I kind of got where Ole's character was coming from because the whole point of being in the Four Horsemen was that you're protecting Ric Flair. You know, other horsemen don't challenge Ric Flair for the world's heavyweight title and in a way Sting should have known that. Chris, what do you think? So I remember reading somewhere that the best heels are the ones that believe what they're saying is true and correct or that they feel like they're justified. That's a perfect example here. You're exactly right. Oli is completely justified. Sting knows the rules when he gets in the group and then he breaks the rules. He already kind of broke the rules by wrestling Flair at Starcade, you know, wins the Iron Man thing. And now he's got the title match. That's just a no-no. You're not supposed to do that if you're a horseman. Oli is completely right and justified to say, no, you got to give up the match or you're going to have to go. Yeah. And you can see Sting's side of it too. Like, you know, no, I'm not just going to give up my aspirations of being world's heavyweight champion just because I'm friends with Ric Flair, because I'm part of the four horsemen. But the other side of it is like you just said, that that's where Ole's coming from. That's the old school horseman mentality. Sean, give us your thoughts. That's why that Ole promo was important. The first one. And that's why Rick couldn't do it. 
it had to be Oli because Rick was too mad, and you had to let Oli explain. You, you know, you had to have that. Just by the way, uh, Chris, that was um, Terry Funk told that to Mick Foley in, uh, early in his career about the thing about being a heel that you have to okay. believe it yourself. Gotcha. But yeah, it, you needed to sell to legitimize why they were doing this, and that's why that Oli promo, and that's why he had to do it because the other guys were the guys who were going to be the enforcers. By the way, Michael Hayes got that from Louis Tillette back in like 77, 78. So it's, it's been part of the business that the heel has to believe every word he's saying. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so we have this absolute disaster now. Sting, who we're building the company around. Ric Flair should never have been turned heel, in my opinion. However, Rick was the booker and he campaigned for it. He felt like the one guy who could get Sting over as a superstar was Ric Flair, and Rick was going to elevate Sting to that level. Sean, any thoughts on what I just said? No. Rick, at this point, was you, you were not going to get that hatred. I think Rick's last shot at that was in 85 when he did that. And look what they had to do to get that. You know, they had to have everybody in the world jump in the ring and break Dusty's leg. Yeah. I, the, the, the Carolina fans and these fans in Virginia and stuff like they don't want to boo the guy. No, they don't. They had turned Ric Flair babyface back in May of 1989, and here we are barely six months later, and they're turning him again. Not only did that company, no matter who owned it, did they do too many turns always, but now you're putting Ric Flair in a position where he's not at his best, uh, where he's not in his best role. Tabe, what do you think? I agree. At this point, it's like the the Road Warriors. You can't make them heels. They just, nobody wants to boo them. They're way too cool. Flair is just way too awesome, way too much personality to be able to boo the guy. Even in 85, he was a heel in the Carolinas, but he was a face on TBS because of the, or the other way around because he was shooting with Nikita Koloff. Same thing. People just did not want to boo Ric Flair. And how can you? The guy just, you look at the guy and you're like, yeah, that dude's awesome. I want to cheer that guy. Yeah, I, I completely the, agree. The bigger issue is that you're exposing Sting possibly. Because if you have a feud with Rick and the fans won't boo Rick, well, they got to boo somebody. Yep. And many a wrestler. I mean, the same thing happened to Lex Luger that, you know, the fans didn't get as into Luger in 88 as they should have because he's against Ric Flair and no one's going to boo Flair. Like, I get where Rick was coming from. I really do. Like, look, I'm the guy. If Sting oh, yeah. beats me for the world title, he's your Hulk Hogan for the next 10 years. I get that. But at the same time, there are different roads you could go down, and I would have gone down a different road. There's no way I would have let Rick turn heel. And plus, I'm, I'm giving Rick credit for being unselfish, wanting to get Sting over. However, there's also no question in my mind, Rick just likes being a heel. Oh, yeah, it's, 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 more, it's just default setting. It's easier. It is easier. It's, it's easier to get people to not like you than it is to get people to like you. And here's Rick where everyone likes him, and he, he still insists on playing this role. Okay, now, post-match, of course, you know, this was life in 1990. The show ends at 10.30. At 10.31, the phone rings. You know, someone wants to know what I thought of the show. I'll start with you, Tabe. What did you think of the show overall? It's just not as good as a class should be. I know that after the first four or five, the class just kind of dropped off, although Clash 6 was really good because it had Flair and Steamboat. But this is just, eh. There's nothing really stand out on this show. You got the one big main event match, like the Road Warriors and the Skyscrapers, that ends up being nothing. The main event cage match is 
you know, the one side doesn't even belong there. Eh, it's just kind of a mediocre show. It's obviously just there for the angle. Overall, kind of a, I had told you before that I didn't watch the show originally. I hadn't watched the show before. I actually had when I watched it, I remembered it. So the second time watching it, I was kind of unimpressed. Same as the first time. Just not that great. Sean, what are your thoughts? Chris nailed it. They scrapped together a show for the sole purpose of putting together one angle. And the wrestling gods frowned upon them and had the angle get all messed up because of a dumb screw up of theirs. So yeah. they turned the show, which could have been something, into a throwaway show. If you want to see the important part of the show, go watch the interview with Rick and Sting and the Horsemen, Sting and Terry. That's it. There's really nothing else worthwhile. Yeah, it felt like, you know, okay, A, we have to fill up two and a half hours, and B, this Clash of the Champions, its sole purpose was to build up the pay-per-view. It wasn't a, a standalone show. It was entertaining enough, but at the end of the day, I have to give it a slight thumbs down. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Why wasn't Luger wrestling? Put him in with Doc and have a double DQ or something like that instead of the Samoan Savage, and then at least you have a halfway decent singles match on the card. You know what, though? They were doing Doc and Luger on the pay-per-view. So I, I thought having oh, Doc that's and right. Luger yeah. yep, and, right. you know, put him as the number one contender for the U.S. title and then having Luger do an interview, even though the interview totally went sideways, I thought that was a decent plan coming in. All right, so I'm going to put both of you guys on the spot as we wrap this baby up. Cabe, you are the booker, and it is 10 minutes after this show, and you learned that Sting has blown out his ACL. What do you do? Luger goes over clean at Wrestle War because he should have won the title in 88. And so now what you've done, you've put Luger over, you wait for the six months for Sting to come back, give him time to recover so he's not coming back in just five months or whatever it ended up being. Give him time to recover. And now Sting and Luger, they're the, you know, the former friends. And you say, hey, you took my title shot. That's my title. Let's go. Now you've got a whole nother main event feud. Okay, so you would have turned, would you have turned Lex Luger babyface? No, nah, leave him heel and let Flair just be the heel again. It's like, you know, guys, I realize that you hated me for going after Sting. I hope you understand where I'm at. But, the, you know, it kind of just go back to being a babyface or just being a tweener or have it, you know, yeah. let it be heel versus heel. Neither one of those guys has to be a pure babyface. Don't turn Luger babyface there. Heck, it, let him cheat to win the title if you want. Let him keep him as a heel. Okay, Sean, what would you, you're the booker. You took take over 10 minutes after this match. What do you do? Basically, I would have you got to turn Flair back face. Have him be like that early 85 kind of tweener that he's a baby face against Koloff. And he could do that. I mean, you can have him as a baby face against Luger because everyone hates Luger anyway. And then when Sting comes back, flip it back and you can have him, you know, well, hopefully everyone forgets him. You can forget the whole thing happened. But... Yeah, the the key, this is, you have a hot Luger, and the only person you can get Luger over with as a babyface on the roster right now is Flair. So that's your only, that's, I don't really see many other options. I mean, I guess you could call Ricky back. Uh, that, that would be a <laughs> tough one. Um, yeah. I would do one of two things. Number one, first of all, I would not have turned Luger back babyface under any circumstances. Plan B, what I would have done was to have had Scott Steiner wrestle Lex Luger on TV, winner is the number one contender, and Scott Steiner pulls off the upset. The pay-per-view in two weeks is Ric Flair versus Scott Steiner. Oh, and while we're at it, Rick Steiner against Lex Luger. Option B, and this is, you know, really my option A, what I would have done. The next Saturday on TV, we go into Sting's hospital room 
with a camera and sitting with Sting is Ric Flair. And Ric Flair just says, look, Ole went off on his own. I had no idea he was going to do that. Yeah, we talked about it, but we never said, hey, I'm going after Sting. Yeah, I started swinging at Sting because the bullets were flying. I didn't know what to do. Sting, brother, I'm sorry. And, you know, I'm going to help you rehab. And when we get back together, we'll go after the Andersons. And then you have the Andersons go on TV and completely flip out over Rick doing what he did. And the main event for, I think it was Wrestle War, would have been Ric Flair versus Arn Anderson with Ole Anderson in the corner. The reason that they turned Luger, okay, was they were constantly in panic mode. Every pay-per-view, either it gets a huge buy rate, it's a huge success, or we're cleaning house. So, you know, the poor bookers are going pay-per-view to pay-per-view. They're not looking long-term. And I don't think they should have done that. I think they should have said, look, long-term, we need Rick as a baby face. We need Lex as a heel. Here's how we get back on that track. And you can have the Andersons as heels, no problem. I like that idea. Steiner yeah. is a main event guy in 1990. I don't like, but the Flair and Sting, if Flair does it right, yeah, he could say, hey, I lost my head. I'm sorry I slapped you around. Please forgive me. I'm really sorry. Let's go get the Andersons. I like that idea. That's a good idea. Yeah, just and by the way, never show that interview where he turns again because you're going completely against what actually happened. But I mean, it's it's what I would yeah. have done. But anyway, yeah, and and long term, long term, your guy is Sting, and I would have had Lex Luger at some point beat Ric Flair for the title. Sting then beats Lex Luger for the title, and then we have Ric Flair versus Sting in a babyface versus babyface match where Sting wins and he is coronated as the new top guy in WCW. There you go. I like that. All right. Was this the start of the meme of everybody turns on Sting or was that already in effect? (laughs) Well, everyone turned on Dusty and Dusty was the lead babyface and Sting was going to be the lead babyface. So, I mean, that's just a common wrestling thing that, yeah, we eventually we're going to see everyone turn on Sting. This is the start of Sting being the dumbest guy in the history of the world. Well, that, that's what I'm going with. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? He was the only one who got shot by this. Exactly. Like he's surprised that the horsemen are mad at him for not giving up the title match. No. <laughs> Good point. Good point. I mean, looking at the history of the horsemen, but hey, this is a really good show. And Tape, thank you for coming on. Chris Tabar, everybody. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. I'm glad we were able to make it work out this time. I'm hopefully get a chance to do it again sometime. I thought that was a really good conversation with Chris Tabar. He was an excellent guest, and he will be back on the show soon. I, I liked what we did last week. We just had the conversation go organically. We talked about everything we needed to talk about. It took like 90 minutes, so we broke the show up into, okay, 60 minutes of that talk this week, about 30 minutes of it this week. I think it was more like 35, but... Sean, when we were having that conversation, I got done, you know, we were on the phone for, you know, a little over an hour and a half. And I go look at my Twitter and I I know by now this is going to be kind of old news. I go to my Twitter and I see the incredible report that Kobe Bryant had died. One of those once in a generation things that just more, not only because of the magnitude of the person and it's such a, because he's finally kind of gotten his reputation back recently uh, you know uh, since he retired you know yeah. he was a family man with his daughter and it just it, it oh i just even thinking about it, it's horrible but it's it, it's just the shock of it it's like a the john lennon moment for another generation yeah totally i mean you know we're i mean let's face it 
Sean and I were out here, Metro Boston. We're Celtics fans. We're not going to like the Lakers, but I never could really bring myself to hate the Kobe and Shaq Lakers as much as I did the Magic and Kareem Lakers. There's always a level of respect for certain, you know, I always exactly. had that with James Worthy as well. When Kobe, I'll give him credit right here. When he got his 80 points, that was all pretty much a competitive basketball game. Okay. Yeah. That was not 50 points getting padded on at the end. Like other people, you know, that was a legit competition that, that those 81 points happened in. So that's, that's even more of a credit to him to do that. It really was, you know, people will say things like, um, what do you care? You, you didn't know Kobe Bryant. Thousands, tens of thousands of people died today, yesterday, whatever. But those people, yeah, I'm sorry to say it, those people never brought joy into my life the way Kobe Bryant did. You but, knew Kobe Bryant better than you knew the other 10,000. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, you know, I didn't know him, but, you know, I, he... You know him. Yeah, exactly. You know exactly what I'm, you know what yeah. I'm saying. So sure. anyway... It's part of your life for 20 years. You have no choice. It's like many of these wrestlers were in territory days. <laughs> Precisely. The, the like guy that? was part of part of all. I mean, if you're a basketball fan at all, he was part of your life. But anyway, this show was going to come out February 2nd, 2020. And we're going to talk about some of the things that historical events that happened that week. And I would like to start with February 11th, 1984. Tito Santana moseys on into the Boston Garden and beats the Magnificent Morocco for the Intercontinental title. It is the biggest upset for me watching wrestling, the biggest upset result I have ever seen at a live event. I don't even know what what would come in second place. We were stunned, especially since the titles never changed hands in Boston. But I just didn't see Tito Santana at that level, and I was half thinking I was going to go home and it would just all be forgotten and Morocco would be on TV the next week, still with the belt. But no, obviously that's not what happened. I have made the statement, by the way, I was at this uh, event. I wasn't at the second one we're going to talk about, but I was at this one. I was nine years old and still my favorite wrestling moment ever. Um, I, I have sung Don Morocco's praises for many, many a year. But at this point, Don was really kind of, I think the presence of Hogan was starting to get him frustrated. And he wasn't the same guy that he was earlier on because I think he see he starts to see where his role's going and it's not in the right direction. I love Tito at this point. Tito was my guy, and this was the start of where we kind of we've disagreed about this, but I I still think this. I always felt the IC belt in the mid '80s was the Boston belt. That was like we got that each time. I mean, sometimes we got Hogan, you know, two three times a year maybe. But you always got the IC belt. It was always either Randy. And the, the times that Hogan did come in, it was against Randy. And Randy ended up being, you know, almost getting as many cheers as, uh, uh, in, um, as Hogan because Randy was that over in Boston. And so was Tito. So, yeah, this was fantastic. It came out of nowhere. They barely, I don't even think they have all the footage. They just have the ending. And, yeah, it just came out of absolutely nowhere. But it was great. They They have a little bit of the footage. They say that the ending... Uh, like didn't get recorded or something went wrong. Like I just remember it being a really, really bad match. And I don't know why, but it, it, it was. And I think they just, you know, showed a little bit of it. And I don't remember if the finish got messed up or what, but they're like, okay, here's two minutes of highlights. This is all you need to see from this match. Yeah. I'm guessing that's what this is. This is like an ECW number. When Paul had a series of bad matches, what he would do is he quick cut them all. So you wouldn't have to put up with them. Uh, you know, he just, you'd have like 
30 seconds good in an Axel Rotten match that was 50, 20 minutes. You know, so you'll get the 30 seconds. Uh, I think that's probably what's happening. I am thinking of back on this match. I'm going to admit it right now with rose colored glasses because I was nine years old and I loved Tito. I, there was something about him. There was, uh, I, I, he was one of those guys I really believed. Because you had, you were starting to get more of a clownish element at this point oh, yeah. uh, into the Federation, and Tito wasn't like that. So I think I was gravitating toward Tito. Tito was more of an NWA kind of guy. And the IC belt turned into kind of like the NWA-style belt, which is why I loved it in Boston. Again, I'm probably over-exaggerating the thing, but we always had the IC belt in. And I loved it. I, I was fine with that. I was fine having Tito against Savage, which I had seen a million times on Ness and, and a couple times live. I love that match. Those two are not capable of a bad match. Those two, you know, right to the end. You could have sent them out there in the 90s. They would have had a good match. You know, we, we, we talked about, like, Morocco, like, saw the direction that things were going for him. I mean, I think on this night, now, mind you, Vince, the, the national expansion had just started, okay? I mean, we're, we're not talking even months. We're talking weeks. And it was pretty obvious. It should have been pretty obvious that nothing was going to be the same again. And Morocco had been back in the WWF since late 1982. We're talking like December 82. And here we are, February 84. And he's got to be thinking he's on his way out of the territory. And he's also got to be thinking, well, I'm going home to Hawaii and I'm hanging out for a while and we'll see what happens after that. And it all worked out, I think, really well for him because he kind of, you know, disappeared for a while, well, a while meaning just a few months, came back repackaged as being managed by Mr. Fuji. And then in early 1985, he had a run against Hogan, not, you know, in the expanded areas. They're not going to bring that match to San Antonio, but Boston got a series. I, I know Madison Square Garden had a series. I don't think Philadelphia got one. But Morocco had another run on top against a guy who was going to sell every seat in that building. This is all in retrospect. Yes. At this time, I would say no more than a year earlier than this, Don was the man. Don had to be sitting there looking at the situation, looking at the rest of the roster. This is pre-Hogan and saying, I don't know what he had heard, but could I be like being positioned to be like the next kind of superstar Graham, the great heel champion? Because Bob's got to go at some point. You know, you're in 82. I mean, he's got to be sitting there thinking, who else is there? It's me. And then all of a sudden, here comes Hogan. And you you see that go right out the window. So I not only is he kind of just the usual kind of, I I can sense almost a little, screw this. Yeah. Yeah. um, I mean, I I have mentioned on the show before, when Morocco came back, uh, December 82, I was convinced that he was winning the title from Bob Backlund. And he was having that run. And by the time Backlund actually lost the title, I had no idea who he was going to lose it to. I automatically assumed we were going to have a superstar Billy Graham, you know, about a year run, a year's run with a heel as champion. So now the baby faces can have their day in the sun. And I'm like, okay, Valentine's already had his two chances. He's probably eliminated. Morocco, now this is his second chance has come and gone. He's probably eliminated. Ken Patera has been gone so long that he's been forgotten about by a lot of the newer fans just aren't familiar with him. So uh, little did I know that there was not going to be a superstar Billy Graham type run with the title for a heel. It was going straight to Hogan. But anyway, February 10th, this week, 
It would have been Chris Adams' 65th birthday. Uh, unfortunately, Chris passed about 20 years ago. Uh, Sean, give us some thoughts about Chris Adams. I'll be honest with you. I don't have a ton. I mean, I, I think that Chris was about as – that was about as good as he was going to be. Um, I, again, I, I almost don't want to even talk about what happened outside the ring because it's – you know a lot of it's conjecture. Some of it's not. Uh, and most of it isn't good. But um, in the ring, he usually was a guy who would meet up to with what he had. If you had him in there with good people, he was pretty good. Um, uh, I, I was watching a uh, match recently with him with Jimmy Garvin, and he was great with Garvin. Uh, he was good with the Von Erics when he was with Gino. But if you put him in a thing where he had to carry it, he really wasn't capable of doing it. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember God, had more than 15 years ago, I read Steve Austin's book. And Jim Ross did some writing in it, and he was talking about how Steve Austin was um, trained by Chris Adams, and Jim Ross just was not very kind to Chris Adams in this book at all. I I think he he referred to him as this this ultimate grifter kind of guy, and I also remember Chris doing a a commercial for his wrestling school, and he's like, you know, yeah, it costs $4,000 to join my wrestling school. Now, that might sound like a lot of money, but I make more than $4,000 a week now. And I didn't even know where to start. Oh, my God. 4000 was so overpriced for a wrestling school in like 89, 90, 91. Uh, and I knew Chris Adams maybe in his best week or, you know what, maybe during the prime of his career, like 85 in world class, he was making around four grand a week. I kind of even doubt it was that much. But those days were long gone for him by then. How many wrestlers from that generation started a school that ended up legitimate? I'm sure there were some. I mean, so many guys started a school and and they they just didn't work out in the long run. I'll I'll give Chris Adams credit for that. His school was around for a long time. That's true. And, you know, I'm not counting Harley here. Harley's somewhat of a legendary guy who's had that, you know, his operation forever. So, and I'm sure there were some some that I'm forgetting, but you just hear so many stories about kind of training issues from this era. I mean, not just like the old stories where they're like, get out of here or they, you know, rough the guy up. I can almost understand that over just almost fraudulent activity at this point yeah and you know what i i I am way more of a chris adams fan than i've been sounding like for the past five minutes i mean he was so good in world class in 84 and 85 when he turned heel and that was really like the peak of his career he wound up going to bill watts after i mean he got drunk on an airplane and managed to headbutt a co-pilot. Uh, I'm not sure if like he knocked the guy out or what the story was, but you don't do that. And Chris went away for a few months as a result of that conduct. Supposedly, and again, this is something I heard a million years ago. I don't know if it's true. Chris's big beef with world class, the reason why he left and he was still a world heavyweight champion, was because Chris wanted Fritz to use his influence uh, Fritz von Erich to use his influence to get Chris out of that situation. And Fritz kind of flat out told him, no, I'm not doing that. I need to save that for the next time. Uh, Carrie or Kevin or get into trouble. It's just, he, he really has no business to say anything about that. They used him perfectly. My only complaint about how they used him is that he should never be a face. The only reason that worked was the brilliance of sunshine, basically. Um, I, I, you know, I thought he came across well. Because of her. <laughs> no, not really. He, he was fine before he got Sunshine in that, that angle with Jimmy Garvin. Um, you know, he was a good number four babyface behind the three Von Erich kids. 
the thing with Chris was that once and I, I've said this on the show before, it was like once he turned heel. And I, by the way, I, I saw him as a babyface in Portland, and I saw a little bit of him as a babyface in Los Angeles. He was fine, but it was almost like once he started being a heel, he couldn't stop. And as a babyface, he came across as a heel in his promos. He, he's a natural heel. He just has that kind of thing. He's like Lex Luger that way. He just has a just natural kind of arrogance to him that just doesn't go away as a babyface. So I, I, to use him as a, a face is... I don't know. I, I, it worked in this case, but that was more a credit to Jimmy Garvin and to uh, Sunshine than him. I, I almost thought it was a feud between Jimmy and Sunshine, and he just happened to be there. You know, uh, yeah, that's actually a good point. I mean, the, the girls were obviously the big part of the feud, and it was Jimmy Garvin who really had the issue with Sunshine leaving him, and Chris was just kind of on the side. I, I always wondered, like in 88, 89, I would see Chris in Texas. Uh, he went back to world class after, you know, he went to the UWF and that got sold to Jim Crockett promotions. And you know what happened to everyone but Sting in that transaction as far as the wrestlers go. But I always wondered, like in 88 and 89, like why wasn't the NWA, especially 88, why weren't they bringing him in? I mean, he was a fresh new face for a promotion that needed those. And yeah, I know the Chris Adams stories. Like yeah, they, else. you just answered your question right there. No, I think it's exact, not really, I mean, though. The same reason Buddy Landell wasn't getting work anywhere. And the same reason, because you just don't need it in this day and age. It's one thing when you have a little territory and you know the local cops. But if you're starting to run a national program, you don't got time for anything like this. And not only that, but just to go back to one thing you mentioned that I, I didn't have a chance to comment on, that you're the number four babyface. Who did he take over the spot from? Oh, I mean, it, there was no one in that spot. I mean, oh, yeah, there was. Change, there most so... certainly was someone in that spot. Oh, Guerrero? Brian Adidas. Uh, I, ne- I never saw him that high, especially. Oh, in, like, I did. Before, the... before Chris got there, he was. In, he like, was always like the buddy that got thrown in there. Yeah, they, they were trying to give him the rub off of the Von Erichs for a while. Well, maybe 83 is a little far. But I'd say like, you know, 82 coming up in the early, early days before Chris got there. Well, that's the thing. It was it was it was just wasn't the same promotion after the Freebirds came in. But I mean, addressing an earlier point that you made, you know, yeah, there were Chris Adams stories. So we would have fit right in the locker room. It's the wrestling business. It, it, you had guys like that in the 80s. Uh, yeah, but there weren't a lot of. Uh, yeah, I guess. But if you, it, it, I think it's the magnitude of the thing. It's one thing to be like a Dick Murdoch kind of guy who's just a pain in the butt every day or just having these potentially monumental big things that can involve the feds okay. like anything over a plane would <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, he, it's like batman he's paid his debt to society and here here's how this conversation would have gone with me and you in 1988 i would have said hey they should bring in chris adams and you're like oh but there's chris adams stories and i would say yeah but they have chris champion on the roster i win that's your defense I'll say that wasn't a good idea. They did nothing with him anyway. It, it, he's not, it, he's just, again, he's, there's a line of just your normal troublemaker, pain in the ass behavior to criminal. And Chris Adams tends to be, most guys are smart enough to kind of stay on this side of the line. You, they'll do dumb stuff. But again, on this side of the line, Chris is one of those guys who goes over that line. And that's the scary part. That's why Snooker disappeared so fast. Listen, I need, I, need to, I need to whisper this to the audience. Obviously, Sean has not heard the Chris Champion stories. 
Oh, I don't think he should be there either. <laughs> I agree with you. I'm saying my, you're, you're just having me throw the two of them out. All right, I, I could see that. But, I mean, I'm just saying, you know, this is how much they're worried. I mean, I don't know what happened. I mean, I don't know if Chris just, you know, pissed the wrong guy off, which I know he was kind of capable of doing. But I, I actually thought he was conspicuous by his absence in the late 80s slash early 90s. You know, especially in 89 when they were rebuilding the whole promotion. I always thought, as far as his talent level goes, he was a guy they could have used. And, I mean, again, in 89, they were talking to the Dynamite Kid, talking about bringing him in. Oh, one last Chris Adams thing, by the way, which reminds me, uh, there was a rumor going around in 87 when Dynamite blew out his back and they weren't sure, like, what was going to happen. There was a rumor that Chris Adams was going to replace him in the British Bulldogs. Oh, but that's exactly what they need is to add him to the mix between those two. There's the good ship lollipop right there. Again, there it was the wrestling business. They, if you can bring in a guy, it's a, yeah, like it's the wrestling Michaels business. And Marty Jannetty, you can bring in Chris Adams. Yes, it's the wrestling business at the time, and they're bad for the time. But I'm saying, I'm saying, everyone else got a free the free pass that Chris Adams did. Maybe every, not literally is there everyone any else. Any wrestler but. from that ever who does not have a Tom Billington horror story? Yeah, and they were willing to bring in Tom Billington. And Billington, you know, was according to Billington, he was on the phone with Flair, and Flair told him, hey, you need to tone down your act. And Billington said, you know what, Rick, let's just forget about it. I don't know. All right, one last thing. Uh, February 9th, 1983, an NWA world title change occurs as Ric Flair is pinned clean in the middle. By the mysterious Midnight Rider. <laughs> I thought, at the, I still think in a weird way, this was a really cool angle. Uh, the Midnight the first incarnation of the Midnight Rider, not the 88 incarnation, yes. but the 82, 83. An important distinction. Yeah. The, the 88 was brought out for the sake of bringing it out. This was brought out for a very specific reason. If you want to compare it to anything, Uvalde Slim back in, I think it was in Georgia, back in like, whenever is kind of closer to what you were doing here. But the basic deal was this was part of the Sullivan feud, I believe. And he lost a loser leave town match to Sullivan. Mm-hmm. And he had come back under the mask to get his revenge. And this, this whole trend, this ended up with uh, Sullivan losing the match and becoming loose for uh, a similar kind of thing. But the deal came up that he had the match against flair. And if he beats, you know, if you can't have, the, I think this is where the whole deal started, where you can't have a mask guy as the champion. Well, no, it, it wasn't that. And let me take at a least step publicly. Back. Yeah, you, let me take a step back. Dusty lost a loser leave town match to Kevin Sullivan when I mean Sullivan cheated quite badly. He used an atomizer to stick down in Dusty Rhodes' mouth and and knock him out. So Dusty has been barred from Florida for you know he's been cheated out of being able to wrestle in Florida for ninety days. So he comes back, and I think this was the first time a babyface had ever done this on a, a major scale. Comes back as a babyface as the Midnight Rider. He's got a big old bodysuit and a mask. And it's it's obvious that it's dusty, but it's not over-the-top obvious, like, say, Jimmy Valiant is Charlie Brown. It's pretty over the You see the blotch. What are you talking about? No, he had a full bodysuit on. Oh, okay, yeah, but still, he has somewhat of a distinctive body, especially for people who have seen him for 10 years. And he spoke a specific way, and there was blonde hair, yeah. curly blonde hair poking out of the mask. It was every but, bit know, the Jimmy Valiant deal. It was, it was Sullivan getting what he deserved. And yeah, it was part of the joke. 
And, and then we have the key bits where Gordon would be like, well, I don't know. Yeah, and they announced that if that Sullivan could prove that that's Dusty Rhodes, well, Dusty's out for an, for an entire year, banned from the entire NWA, not just Florida, which is kind of dumb because he, he could always come back as Midnight Rider, too. But Midnight Rider gets a match against Ric Flair, and he wins, beats Ric Flair clean in the middle. He's the new NWA champion. Well, Bob Geigel is in attendance, and a mass wrestler certainly can hold the title. But Bob needs to verify, just for the NWA's own records, who their champion is. So Dusty is caught in a really bad spot. He can't show Bob Geigel, hey, I'm Dusty Rhodes. I'm suspended, but I'm doing this because he's out for a year. So he has to hand over the NWA title to Bob Geigel. At the time, I thought it was brilliant. And every promotion did something like this. By the way, I think I was wrong. I think Stagger Lee... Had become junkyard dog had become Stagger Lee in like November 1982. But Dusty, well, Dusty did right this before. It. No, Dusty did this before. As before Slim. Yeah, 1980. But it, it, if I understand correctly, Uvalde Slim wasn't Dusty's being suspended. It was Dusty's alter ego. It was this guy he could put the mask on, and he didn't have to be like you know an upstanding citizen, Dusty Rhodes. He could be Uvalde Slim, and right, he could just randomly beat the crap face. out of people. Right, but it was still the yeah. It, it didn't involve a suspension, right? But it was it kind of the same concept where you obviously knew who the guy was, you know, and that part. But yeah, it, it, the suspension was different. So yeah, no, right. But but Uvalde Slim was an alter ego. Midnight Rider was Dusty hiding under a mask. And by the way, and I have to throw this in: they didn't just throw it out there in 1988. This was Dusty's big angle that was going to turn the company around, or at least he thought. Yeah, but it wasn't set up as anywhere near as well as this was. Oh, no, no. That's what I mean by throwing it out. Yeah, I mean, but it was, you know, it was their big angle. And by the way, Dusty, as the Midnight Rider in 1988, they were going to do the same thing at the Great American Bash. There was a reason why Dusty Rhodes was suspended for 120 days this time instead of 90, because they were going to completely redo that angle. And they spent a lot of television time on that angle. And they wasted it all. They dropped it after like six weeks. But anyway, we have used up your 60 minutes once again. Um, I want to thank Sean Goodwin for being the convivial co-host that he is. I want to thank everyone for listening. And please tune in next week. Lou Kippelman, our producer, thanks for all you do. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Hawks. Go Hawks.